Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 476. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 476 you're listening to, and this episode is very special. This is part one of my Live from NAMM 2024 episodes, where my guests and I are live from the PMC booth at the NAMM Show 2024 in Anaheim, California. This episode today features previous guests, Talking about former WCA guest Brad Wood, who's worked, of course, with Liz Fair, Veruca Salt, Skating Polly, Smashing Pumpkins, and many others, as well as former guest Steve Genowick, who spent 20 years working alongside Al Schmidt and has worked all over the world with artists such as Paul McCartney, Diana Krall, and LL Cool J. Both these guys are great friends of mine, and they have been on the show numerous times. So in this episode, we're in front of a live audience there at the PMC booth inside a box. Yeah, inside a room within the halls of NAM 2024. So very exciting. Brad Wood and Steve Genowick, live from NAM 2024, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about charting your own path. You've heard it time and time again that you don't want to be competing with others. You want to be competing against yourself. It's being a better person today than you were the previous day. It's being a better engineer, being better at whatever audio gig you do, being better the next day than you were the day before. The point is to stop chasing other audio professionals. This could be, of course, applicable to all aspects of life. It's important to chart your own path. Stop chasing other people's careers. Stop chasing and and or using other people's presets, their sounds, copying their records, copying their techniques. It's important to be you, to build upon what you have. Make decisions that you can stand by that are representative of you, that represent you. Doing a mix and saying, yeah, on this, I use this technique I learned on YouTube, or on this, I use this technique that I stole from so-and-so. How about for once, using techniques you developed, using ideas you developed. I love all the knowledge that's out there on social media, YouTube, Instagram, you know, all the shorts, etc., long form video, whatever. I love all that, that's fun, but I'm also quite sick of it. I see it and I roll my eyes now, to be honest. It makes me wish people would stop paying attention to this stuff. And I'm not saying that, you know, oh, Matt, you've managed to, not succumb to any of that and you've charted your career perfectly. No, I haven't. But I am at a point where I just don't pay attention to that shit anymore. You know, if I look back at my interview with Michael Brower, Michael said a few things, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, but he essentially said he really wasn't paying that close attention to what other people were doing. He was really focused on what his techniques were, his approach, and clearly that's worked out for him. Be you. Develop your techniques, your presets, your approach. Make it uniquely you. Because when we're using all the same tools, 
which really, at the end of the day, we're all using the same tools. Sure, few of you out there have some unique stuff, and that's cool. But the fact that we're using the same gear, if we're all using the same techniques, it's all going to sound the same. So don't be afraid to try something on something that wasn't meant for that thing. Is that, am I being clear? I hope I'm being clear there. In other words, take the mic that was meant for kick drums and try it on something else like guitars or, or vocals. I'm working on a record right now where the artist was surprised to see me DSing overheads and hi-hats. It's like DSing wasn't just made, in my opinion, for vocals. I use it on things that bug me in that range that sibilance happens in the voice on other instruments, whether it's cymbals or guitars. Try things in a way that works for you. Try things that make your project sound better to your ear. Like all these rants, I could just go into the weeds and just be repetitive, but you know what I'm saying. It's all about being you. This is just a reminder. So quit, quit chasing. Quit looking for the answer in other people's work and other people's things. You need to start creating for you. You need to start being you. So I'll leave you alone. Take this rant, run with it, and I hope to see some originality out there. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get 
refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Brad Wood and Steve Genowick, live from NAM 2024, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome. We are recording. Yeah. All right. Uh, Do it like three times so we can triple it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brad Wood, Steve Genowick. First, I want to thank you guys for a number of reasons. Not only do I consider you friends, but you've been supportive of my show. You've been supportive of me as a fellow engineer. Both of you have been mentors to me in the Atmos journey. Sorry. Can't take it back. <laughs> and we're all PMC users. It's probably because of you two that I got on to PMC with my sister. Sorry. Can I get my money back? No, I tried. But seriously, these two guys have really been helpful to me in my journey that started almost two years ago. So I'm grateful that they're here. And we want to thank PMC, of course, because they're quite supportive of all of us, as well as putting on this event. Thanks to you all. Well, let's start with this. Let's start with the current state of Atmos in January 2024. So those listening at home who are not here at NAM can get your thoughts on where are we at? What's, what's your assessment of Atmos being its perception in the world, its adoption, your experience with it, and how it compares to the past? Well, Steve's been in the Atmos space a lot longer than pretty much anybody here. So I think he has a better sense of perspective. I jumped in in 2020, and it was Steve that was nice enough to host me at uh, Capitol uh, the fall of 2020, and I listened to Rocket Man, which is a great way to get started. But in 2020, Atmos was streaming with, on Tidal and was it Amazon Music then? And that was more or less it. Apple Music is the difference between when I started my journey with Atmos and, and now. And now pretty much everything that I'm doing revolves around what Apple Music wants to do. And what it seems to want to do right now is have more of the artists who put their music up on, on Apple Music to do an immersive or Atmos mix. Yeah. And they've been driving this initiative since June of 2021 when they went live streaming lossless. And they were actually driving it before that. They were, yes. But, <laughs> but nobody knew about it except right. for. But a it few went public. They yeah. publicly started streaming Atmos in 2021. So the difference between then and now is that they're just the largest player in this space. And they're also fairly opaque. They don't always tell us or anyone what's going on and what their long-term initiatives are and goals. So I find that Dolby's been very consistent this whole time as far as what the product is and the physical speaker mixing, the process that with you know, I use Pro Tools and the way the Dolby renderer software and Pro Tools work has been there have been incremental changes and positive, and Apple has been like the rocket that's been strapped to everything, and they're just the, the biggest company in the world or something like that. So learning how to make consistently good mixes that will hopefully translate into an ever-changing playback scenario, and that's the other part of my answer, is that 
playback systems. Not everybody can have a full physical array like I'm pointing at all these wonderful speakers here. But when you say everyone can, are you talking about the consumers? Or are you talking about the pro audience? No, not, not everyone has access. Most people don't have access to this physical array of speakers and maybe never will. And so that's also a big concern for, at least for me, like what is the end user's method of, of listening to this. So I spend a lot of time listening to my AirPod Pros, which I didn't do that before 2020. I spent a lot of time paying attention to that. Do you feel that the acceptance, the adoption in, in the, we'll call it the real world, is picking up? Based on what I've read and also just anecdotally, yes. Okay. But I know I'm not an expert on it. I mean, those kinds of metrics, those numbers, they don't filter down to me so much. Yeah, know? yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Steve, what's, what's your perception of the state of Atmos in 2024? First of all, I agree with pretty much everything Brad said. Yeah, it's a, it's a much different world than when I started mixing Atmos because... And when was that? Uh, 2017, I think, we built the room at Capitol. And for the first two years I was mixing, I had no idea. We didn't know where it was going to be. Pl- like, there was no streaming. There was, I mean, I was mixing stuff that couldn't be released. I mean, we knew that there was some kind of a plan. We knew we weren't mixing for nothing, that eventually this is going to come out. But we had no idea what it was. Now, in hindsight, there were deals in place with Amazon and, and Tidal and those places. But for the first year, I didn't even have another room to listen in. They, and we didn't even consider headphones. They told us to ignore it, kind of. They were like, just for, just. At, at that time, though, what, what about your enthusiasm for it? Was it like, ah, what is this? Where, where is this going to go? No, I was really enthusiastic, literally from the second I heard it. So, I mean, I've told the story a million times, but I was basically dropped into the middle of it. We were told to build an Atmos room at Capitol and that I was going to mix a record. And it's like, okay, great. Being the staff guy, that's just what you do. You show up to work. But when we got the room installed and I heard it, and I was like, I remember my first comment was, oh, this is like 5.1, but it actually works. <laughs> because it was scalable and you could move stuff. The sides worked and the back worked. And then they told me that the spec was full range speakers everywhere. It wasn't little satellite speakers in the back and all that. I mean, that's the spec. The reality is a little bit different. So my question was, I can put anything anywhere. And they said, yes. And I said, great. So I did. And that's how we all got into this mess, basically. And then when Apple came on board, that's when the culture changed a little bit because suddenly it was all about the headphone mix. And I get it. I agree with it. As we sit here today, most people will consume this on headphones and it's a thing. But to me, it's not the thing. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's a gateway. Um, it's, a, it's a gateway, yeah. <laughs> it's how we get and started. It's, and it's also... People are complaining about it and, you know, what's it's this and it's that. And it, but these are the same things we had in stereo. You know, I sat next to Al Schmidt for 20 years. He never mixed a record because he thought everybody was going to listen to it on earbuds. If they want to listen to it on earbuds, go ahead. That's fine. I'm happy for you. But I got to make this sound good everywhere. So that's still kind of my attitude towards it is I want it to sound good everywhere. The difference now is now I have to pay attention to the headphone mix a little bit more. The other thing about the headphone mix is it's a moving target because they're constantly updating the binaural algorithms yep. so, to make it better. So the nice thing is at least it's getting better. But that speaker mix is still the master. So, and it's still more fun to listen to. So I go back and forth. I've spent a long time where I was like, okay, now I'm going to start in headphones and then I'll go to speakers and start in speak. And 
I'm back to just turning on the speakers and yeah. listening I, to the I, headphones I, later. <laughs> I, I was encouraged. I was encouraged by people at Dolby initially back in 2020 when I did not have an Atmos system. I was just working with the software. Well, you should continue to start all of your mixes in headphones and then move into the. And I gave that up about 30 seconds after my system was up and running. You know, why have all these speakers that I'm not going to yeah. use them? Right. But there's some wisdom in the idea that because Atmos folds down all the way to stereo and headphones and AirPods, you really do have to pay attention to all of those. And the 916 or 914 you're using, the 714, the down, 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 and all of them are a little bit different. The better I've gotten at mixing in this format, the, the better the translation is too. So I make fewer changes than I did when I started. But as Steve mentioned, Apple's constantly tweaking with the binaural settings and, and what they're delivering to millions and millions of subscribers. And who knows what the next company will do, whoever that is. Oh, for sure, yeah, there's yeah, more. Whoever, whoever that whoever is. Whoever that is, whenever they come on board. And I'm sure they will at some point. Let's but. talk about your home setups a bit. Knowing what you know now, you've spent money gone through setups you've you've been working on those setups for some time what do you feel are for others who are going to be setting up atmos where can they economize where should they not economize how what would you advise somebody on a setup who's starting from scratch i would advise kind of the same as i would advise in stereo it's first all about the room you're in so if you can fix your room the acoustics in your room that's the best place to start i would say Invest in the best speakers you can afford. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend like a matched set of speakers, the same company, because as you move stuff around the room, you find that even if it's not the exact same speakers, there's real continuity if you have like the same brand of speakers, because usually they have the philosophy is the same through the whole line. Get it tuned as much as you can. And, and with tuning, the biggest thing about tuning is the delays making sure that your delays are worked out with speakers. Because I think the guys from Dolby told me that they've been to one room where all the speakers are the exact same distance. And it happens to be his room. That's Will's. Because every room has a door and a window and a walkway and a console and everything else. So get it as uniform as you possibly can. Get the delays worked out and then learn the room and have some fun with it. I would say if you're doing professional mixes, you probably don't want anything less than a 714 system. I would say that's the bare minimum for mixing. If you have the room and the budget for a 914, that's better. I personally don't. My room is small enough. If I added two more speakers, they'd almost be touching. So yeah, I have a 714 room at my house with, okay. with PMCs, which is working out great. Brad, what about you? So if you're looking to build a physical system and not just use headphones, definitely, I agree. It starts with your room and... Dolby has online lots of resources. You can just go to the Dolby website and, and look to see what they recommend for like a bare minimum as far as the room size. And if a proper mix room for stereo is critical, imagine just adding 11 or 12 or 13 more speakers. It's, it's almost an exponential situation. You've got these speakers that are firing at you. And if they're in a room that's reverberant, has all kinds of issues, then it's only going to compound it. So that's the first place to go is sit in your room and see if it's an appropriate place and if not go find another one i suppose maybe instead of the office you're in if you're in your house pick the larger you know maybe tell your partner we got to move out of the master bedroom because this is where this is where atmos is going <laughs> um, 
I'd like you introduce my new my new partner, Atmos. Atmos, um, yeah. But uh, for me, learning about learning about installation, I, I did my own install. Yeah. Um, I gathered all my components, all the speakers and all the hardware in the first six months of 2020, and then installed it in the first half of 2021, and then installed it in June of 2021. But I did it all myself to save money, and because I had the time, I just did a lot of Googling, and I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials, and there's probably 10 times as many now. There's a lot of information out there. And I agree with Steve that uniformity with your surrounds, all of your speakers being one manufacturer would be great. If you're fortunate enough to be able to get into PMCs, then you're even further ahead. I think that's had a huge, a huge impact on my ability to move into this format and mix successfully. Again, I think it's kind of true that if you've got two speakers for stereo, it's really critical. You don't lessen the load by spreading those across a 914 system like what I've got. It, it means that everything has to be working correctly. It has to be time aligned. It has to be EQ'd. You can do that yourself you, within the software for whatever DAW you're using. I'm using Avid Matrix Studio and the Dadman software. And there's a lot of stuff online. Again, if, if you're looking, I would front load your spend on speakers <laughs> mm. and maybe take on a lot of the installation yourself. Plus, you get to know what's going on. It's a super steep learning curve for someone like myself. I was lost in the weeds endlessly for like the first year. And when it finally sunk in, every step of the way has been confusing. But when you reach these plateaus and you get comfortable and then you can sort of tackle, maybe revisit a thing that was throwing you off, that's just before I even got to mixing in it. It was just understanding what the heck was going on. I think there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be gained from doing as much of it yourself and maybe spending on the gear maybe more so than you would for a stereo setup. Is there anything that you advise strongly against? Like, what, what do you not do? You cannot do this in headphones alone. Mm-hmm. I don't think unless you've done a lot of mixes mm-hmm. that you can, you can do this just in headphones. I'm sure there's some smart people out there who will figure out how to do it, but I don't advise it. When you put that on a speaker system, it's going to sound weird. It, like, I can pick out a headphone mix a mile away. You put it on a speaker system and everything's in the back. So yeah, I wouldn't, I think you have to have, if you're, if you're going to do this professionally, if, if you want to mix music that's going to be released, I think you need to have access to a room with speakers in it to listen to, at least to start with. I would sure. add, don't try to skip steps. Every single stage of, of mixing successfully in Atmos for me has been time intensive. And there's plenty of software out there and people saying that here's a way that like you can just sort of generate, you can self-author or whatever they want to call it. There are no real cheat codes <laughs> for this. It is time consuming. As hard as mixing in stereo is for, for me and probably for anybody but Chris Lord Algae, it's really hard. It's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do well. It, there is benefit at the end of it. Like you learn to do this and then you get comfortable in it. It's affected positively my stereo mixing. Yeah. Um, oh, I yeah. thought I knew a lot about stereo mixing and the relationship between instruments. And, and I've, I've learned even more. But I think that it's a mistake to buy into anyone who's selling you a plug-in or a way to get successful things. It's just like, just feed it all into here and it'll be fine. It's not going to be fine. It, it'll come out maybe. It may even pass Apple Music's QA. But it's not going to compete with, with other Atmos mixes that are out there. Let's talk a little bit about the the economics of it. This past week, as we all know, Apple made the announcement they are going to pay 10% more to artists for Atmos 
mixes or strength. If you have an Atmos, yeah. If, if you if have you right. supply an Atmos mix. Correct. So do you think that that's going to affect budgets in a positive way do, or do you think it'll even matter? I think in the short term, probably doesn't matter. Yes, economics are rough. It's really difficult for an artist, a record label, an independent artist or whatever. They just did this record. They paid all this money to make their record. And now we have to mix it again. Like that's the good news is as we move forward, it's going to be part of the budgets. So, you know, I mean, I know the big labels now are they're factoring it in because they know they have to they have to do it. So I think that part of it, as this moves forward, it won't be such a surprise to everybody. They're just they're going to know going in. I'm talking to artists now and they're like, OK, now we know this is going to happen the next time around. I just did a record in the last couple months and a big artist and they were like, had we known that we had to do this, we would have mixed this record a little bit differently. Not in the, the sonics of it, but they would have laid it out a little bit differently and they would have, you know, and then we would have known we had to do this. We thought we were finished and now we have to do this again. So I think those kind of things will go away. As far as getting paid to do this, that's a whole nother can of worms. I mean, the same as mixing in stereo. You get what you pay for basically. If labels are paying somebody a hundred bucks to do an Atmos mix, you're going to get a hundred dollar Atmos mix. And it's probably going to sound like it. And when you put it up next to a mix that any one of these great engineers walking around here have done, it's going to sound like it. So my philosophy to the whole thing is I'm going to stick with the you get what you pay for. And hopefully the cream rises to the top or whatever that saying is. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think as far as budgets and labels and all that kind of stuff, it's just they know it's coming now, so it's going to be part of the budget. What about you, Brad? Do you, what are your economic it, thoughts? It seems the Apple announcement this week or last week, wherever it was, it seems like it's uh, Apple letting, letting everyone know, especially at the labels, that this is important and we're going to carve out, like, we're paying attention to this and you should too, and we're going to pay more for this. That's how important it is to us. So I think for labels that are already factoring in an Atmos component. This is just more validation for them. If you're a small label or self-releasing and you don't have enough plays, the money's, it's not going to really mean much. I mean, maybe it's an aspirational thing, but I think with 5 million streams is what, there's a a level at which... 500 bucks or something. Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) for a larger artist and a bigger, more established record label, this is a spend that they're already doing. This might just help to keep them committed. I don't think that they did that. I mean, it's aspirational for the rest of us who are not working for big labels or if you're a self-released artist. It's nice to know that you'll get a little bit more if your music finds a market and gets a lot of streaming. You'll make a little bit more. It's nice. But I think it's just more of like a public sort of commitment to this initiative, another one of the yeah. commitments. I think also from the very start, I mean, I remember having these conversations because at the time I worked for a record label. I worked for Universal Music and we were the ones doing it. And, you know, I was in with Dolby and all these. And the goal right from the beginning is to not have two mixes. The goal is one mix. The goal is that the consumers will be hearing Atmos and and it folds down to stereo and it does this. So the goal is that we only ever do one mix and we deliver that mix and it plays on whatever thing you want to play it on. That's really ambitious. It's ambitious. (laughs) I mean, it's not a short term goal. Right, right. (laughs) But that's the goal of the record label. They were like, we'd love to get to the point where we don't have to do this mix twice, where we can deliver one mix and that's what goes out there. And all mm. the streaming services and all, you know, whatever it is 10 years from now, 
that that's just what you deliver is whatever format it is, you deliver that file and it plays on whatever. So that's the ultimate goal. The other thing is I think, and I think we're starting to see it now as more mixers come on board as some of the, the big, bigger mixers who are doing the bigger, there's more people doing it now. So now, I mean, it's happened to me, you know, you get hired to mix a record in stereo and the first thing they do is go, can you do the Atmos mix too? Yeah, it's gonna cost this much more. Okay, great. And you just take care of it. So again, the idea being it becomes very transparent to the artist and to the record label. Before you had to deliver stereo and an instrumental and a this and that, and then you had to deliver stems, and now you're going to have to deliver an Atmos mix. <laughs> so it's just going to be part of the deliverables, and that's what it is. It's going to roll into the mixing budget, and, but that's the ultimate goal is one mix to feed everything. It's going to be a while. But I, if, <laughs> and if I'm correct, when you two started, am I accurate in saying that you both were doing primarily catalog work? previously released material and not necessarily frontline work. Is that, is that right? For the first couple of years, I'm trying to remember the timing, but I think it was right around the time that actually releases started happening when, when Amazon started streaming at Universal, we started doing more frontline records. And to be honest with you, I haven't done a catalog record in maybe a year, mm. at least. I, I shouldn't say that because I've done a couple that I did originally. Or Al did originally. That you so did in stereo. That we originally. did in stereo. Right. But but I haven't gotten like a catalog project in a long time, which is great. But Brad, you you've done a lot of catalog. I, I yeah, the first the first year and a half I did a lot of catalog and it was it was really fun. And that brings up a whole other topic of stereo rebuilding. At yeah, least that's yeah. what I call it, where you're given multi tracks that aren't mixed and the first thing you have to do is edit it time compress it or slow it down speed it up to match and then make it sound so that it matches the original stereo or even mono mix that was released 50 years ago and that usually takes twice as long that as is doing the Atmos mix. labor <laughs> intensive yes it was, a, it was a joyful moment when you finish accurately hopefully accurately recreating the original mix and then you can move into Atmos and then we can actually play around and have some fun. <laughs> can you can yeah. you just talk a little bit about why that is intensive for those that don't know what's what's involved? So if you have a multi-track for a song or for an album and it's recorded in 1975 or 1966 there may be just drums on a mono track, might be just drums and bass guitar and some instruments on a stereo track and then all vocals and you might have four tracks where you, they keep bouncing down like the Supreme stuff I was working on a couple years ago. Or you might have 62 tracks of digital dash multi-tracks transferred at different speeds with a song that's seven and a half minutes long that needs to be edited down to the released three minutes and 23 seconds. And you have to do all that editing before you then... And the arrangement was made with mutes. Yes, right. And, <laughs> and also, this loop goes all the way through the And song. it was maybe mixed on a Harrison yeah. in 1980 with only the equipment available at that time. So to do it correctly, I think you do a lot of research, a lot of Googling. Where was this recorded? Most of the, that, this catalog I'm talking about is stuff that was well-known enough to warrant somebody being paid to go back and recreate and make Atmos mixes. So, so there's a lot of, usually there's a lot of information. Where was the track? Who did the recording? Where was it mixed? What console was it mixed on? And I'll limit myself most of the time to plugins that, that are, you know, an API or Harrison or an or early SSL or, or EMI stuff. And that just all takes a lot of time. And then 
A being toggling back and forth between the original reference, which might be mono or stereo, and just making sure that this all sounds... And do I have the right reference? Oh, yeah, because well, that's this, a whole other thing. Because this record yeah. has been mastered yeah. 10 times that's and right. re-released a million times. Yeah. And that's a whole other kettle yeah. of fish. But, but <laughs> the stereo recreation or this, a rebuild just takes a lot of time. And a lot of it is confounding, just the very speeding. People very sped all the time. And it usually seems like they did it in mastering, where they've got their stereo mix in 1968 and and they're like this is great we're going to cut the lacquers here and the song will be done why don't we just turn it up just a little bit and sometimes they turn it up as they go as the song plays so the pitch and the tempo at the beginning of the song will be almost always faster and higher at the end of it because they'll do it that hasn't happened a lot but it did happen a few times so you had then have to match that and no tape machine ever ran at exactly 30 inches a second they all varied and so that's really time-consuming, and that's been, I think, the, the days of catalog work for me that you're presented with a folder of assets that are beautifully transferred stems that are just ready to go. Those days are over. I'm getting multi-tracks that are unlabeled. They're just audio one, audio two, audio three, and you've just got to go through and sift through, and all of that's just time-consuming. It just takes time. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Are there different challenges in the stereo rebuild based on the era? Absolutely. Yeah. In some ways, the earliest stuff I've worked on from the 60s is better as far as there's just fewer tracks to deal with. And those are the tracks that they had. So again, like a mono. They made decisions as they went. That's right. (laughs) So you put the faders up and like, well, you know, I need to distort this a little bit. I need to lean into it, some frequencies. But in general, it's easier to do that kind of a rebuild. The the era of like the 1980s were are challenging for me. <laughs> the 80s are tough and yeah. 90s are tough because that's when it got into 
we're going to track this on analog and then we're going to do all the overdubs on digital uh, and then, yeah. oh, look, we have this cool little new Pro Tools system and where are I'm those drives? I'm guilty of that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we all are. And I mean, missing tracks, that's, that's a real problem from when studios are transitioning from analog multitracks, like two-inch multitracks to whatever... ADAT or D88 or, or God forbid, a dash format, which is the worst because those machines, for all their expense, don't play back very well. And some tracks possibly missing because they were, you know, the the two inch was locked to a sequencer. The sequencer wasn't committed to tape. Yep, yep, yep. I've had to re-record acoustic guitar parts, backing vocals, things like that. for For famous songs. Yeah. And, And then they were firing samples... Drum oh, yeah. samples from samplers and all that kind That's of stuff. That's not that hard to do. It, no, you know, but, these, you, have, but you, know, you have to do it. Yeah, you, have you have to, to do it, right. It. All of it and takes time, right? Yeah. And you don't even know what you have to deal with until you sort of get in up, up to your elbows in it. And, and oh, by the way, Bob Clearmountain mixed the original, or <laughs> Jeff Emmerich mixed the original. Yeah. Good, good luck matching that. Like, yeah. I, I equate it to people. I'm like, well, look, there's the Picasso. <laughs> Here's a bunch of paints. They're the same color. <laughs> Go ahead. Do how, it. How hard can it be? Yeah. yeah. You have it right there. Just look at the picture and do it again. Yeah. Right? It's that. I mean, that's literally what they're asking us to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I ha- I've done a couple records that I had to go back and, and do Atmos mixes on that, that Al Schmidt mixed originally. I was sitting next to him when he mixed the record. <laughs> I know everything he did because I wrote it down. I can't match that mix. I mean, I, I can get really close. I mean, I hear the difference. But he was Al Schmidt. Like, what he did was fingers and balance right. and the it, way he heard it. It's an artistic performance in some ways right. with, so, with, with mixers. So you you're know. kind of at a loss right from the beginning when you're into catalog stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Other times, the mixes aren't that good. And then you find out <laughs> well, those are the fun ones where you push up the faders and go, why does this sound so much better than the yeah. actual record? <laughs> and, and that's that brings up another <laughs> that's thing. That's another is, whole problem. Yeah, the, the aesthetics of it. Like, I try to take an egoless approach to catalog mixing especially when there's rebuilds involved i don't want to improve on it that's not my job if there's kick drum that's out of phase and just hitting that phase button is the way to make the mix that everyone's known for the last 40 years better i'm still not going to do it because that's not the job and there may be a reason why they wanted that unless i can find the artist or the mixer and if they're open to improving it air quotes there's absolutely no way that i'm going to the artist Make is involved. Better. Yeah. Artist is involved. It's a whole different. It's, it can be different. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times they're like, "Man, we love that mix, and like, please don't change it." Um, like I had an artist on a, a thing that was done in the '80s, and it was a really good mix. But I actually got to talk to the artist and say, "Look, I've been hired to do this," and he went, "You know, we really love that record. It sounds really dated. Like it's really '80s." you think you can roll a little 80s off of it? Like, I don't want to change it, but maybe a little less harmonizer on all the vocals. Maybe that, you know. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, I dialed it back a little bit. Again, I didn't want to change the record. Right. But, yeah, we dialed it back a little so bit. So you're, you're, not, you're not doing the catalog work as much these days, but, Brad, are you continuing to do it? I'm or? doing a mix of it. Okay. I, I'd say it's about 50-50, where now I'm getting hired to do What'd you call it? Top line or what did you frontline? Frontline. Okay, so you know, new records coming out that have been produced and mixed by someone else, but they're hiring me to do the Atmos version. I'm doing, a, I'd say, about half of my Atmos work last year, and all of my Atmos work this year so far that's lined up is for records like that, and that's really cool because 
everyone stems really well these days. Everyone I'm working with or, you know, who are hiring me, they're aware that they need to deliver something other than just the multi-track. And that's been great. It's a lot of fun. And there's a, usually for me, at least there's a lot of interaction with the producer, not so much with the bands or the artists, but the producers are happy. It seems to have someone that they trust. They can just go and listen my discography. Okay, great. Heavy guitar stuff. Bam. I seem to do an okay job with that. You got it, buddy. And I like being given that largesse, but I also, I try really hard not to abuse the privilege. Like whatever it is that they're presenting, I'm just doing an immersive version of that. I really don't want to correct, air quotes, you know, anybody's work. Yeah. What I've noticed is, especially if you get the artist involved, which can be really fun, you get either... I just did this record. I like the way the stereo mix sounds. Make it sound exactly like the stereo mix, but in Atmos, which is impossible because it's not the same. Or you get, wow, can you put that over there? Can you make that? Get more adventurous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I've been encouraged to get more adventurous. I I have one artist. I mean, I can say I've I've done a couple records for Nile Horn. And, well, we played him stuff, and he didn't want to hear his stuff. He just wanted to listen to Elton John and everything else. And then he told me flat out, like, we have a stereo mix. Do your thing. Again, now, I don't want to change. I don't want to change the record, but I had license to get a little creative. That's fun when you when you have that kind of. But that's easier with the newer artists and current stuff. I would yeah. assume. Yeah. Hundred percent. And yeah. you, and I find you get one or the other. There's never a middle ground. It's yeah. either I hate this but I have to do it, so make it sound exactly like the you, stereo, the artist, or go crazy. Yeah. If the yeah. artist is familiar with what Atmos sounds like, they're almost always, in my experience, really excited to push the envelope. And that's kind of what stereo was all about. When the first recording studios were installing stereo desks, and artists were finally able to sit there, the fireworks start to go off, and stereo as we know it, stereo mixing began, because they were creating with that in mind, but it hadn't existed prior to that. And the stereo demonstration kind of mixes that the Beatles were doing, the techs were coming in off hours and throwing the kick drum all the way over to the left. And some of that stuff was pretty aggressive and might not have had anything musical going on because there were technicians just experimenting and playing with it. But once the Beatles got their hands on it, and Brian Wilson got his hands on stereo here on the West Coast, it turned into what it's become. And I, I imagine that's what's going to happen with Atmos, is that artists are going to go places that people like Steve and I haven't even thought of yet. And again, that's the evolution of this. Now I have artists that are telling me like, well, now, now we know this is going to happen. So when we make the next record, we're going to know this is coming. So, I get that a lot too. Yeah. So now Can't wait for the next one. Yeah. I mean, again, I ran into Niall in the hallway at Capitol after I had done the first record and he was making his second record. He happened to be there doing a session. And the first thing he said to me was, you're going to have fun with this one. <laughs> a year later I did. Because he was like, he wasn't making it for Atmos, but he knew that I was going to take that thing and spin it around and take that thing and move it over there. And, and so, yeah, a, as the artists start to compose for this, it's going to be better, too. And so that, uh, that's a good transition. Are you starting to see artists plan in the recording, in the early production of records for the Atmos? Are they making, you know, yes. making decisions, <laughs> tracking decisions? Yeah, 100% based on Atmos. Yes. Yes. I'm seeing first engineers, definitely. Yeah. I, every mean, band, I know I do it. Every band I produce, that's they're getting the full court press from me anyway. Yeah. But I can't think of anybody I've worked with in the last three years who hasn't just taken what I've shown them just by coming in into the studio that we're going to be making their record in eventually and just playing them 
couple of Atmos mixes, and then there, while we're overdubbing, wow, this glockenspiel part, that'll sound really cool up here, won't it? You know, like, what if we put the bass guitar up there? I'm like, calm down, calm down. But they are thinking that way. Yeah, let's try it. It's not so much. Can we put it back down now? Not so much. Yes. But not exactly compositionally, but definitely arrangement. So, yeah, it's happening for sure. And as Logic and other more cost-effective DAWs get better at the latency issue with tracking in Atmos, that's going to get even more commonplace. That's just how you're going to make music. People for generations now have thought about guitars off to the side, you got the kick and snare up the center. That's a pretty common thing. You got bass guitar that kind of might move around a little bit, but nobody's really surprised by the idea of like, I really want this to sound like it's coming out of the left speaker or out of the right speaker. That's pretty commonplace. We all understand that. And I think if enough car audio has Atmos in it and people who are musicians are sitting in their cars or having opportunity to hear things coming from different locations, they're going to eventually start to think compositionally that way. And if not that, at least arrangement-wise. And I will say, jumping on that, a really good binaural mix sounds way better in headphones than a really good stereo mix. That's true. Because yeah. you do have the space. Now, a really bad binaural mix is really bad, but but that's the same in stereo, too. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, that's the other thing we haven't touched upon in this whole discussion is that when Apple started streaming and all this, there was all kinds of chatter like, this sucks and that sucks and they're ruining my song and they're doing this and this format's never going to catch on because it's, you know, and I went through and finally was like, all right, let me do that. I got my AirPod Bros. I went in the backyard and got my coffee and went, I had a list of songs. Like, these are the songs people are complaining about. And I went through and I was like, yep, that mix sucks. Yep, that mix sucks. Yep, that mix. They were all bad mixes. The really good mixes are really good. So, again, it's not the format's fault. Right. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that because with any change in any industry, with anything, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about buggy whips or if we're talking about transition to combustion engine cars, there's always going to be a contingent of people who complain, who push back. The horseshoe maker is never going to like the car. Right. <laughs> That's right. I think it's inevitable that we will have that. I mean... I think we all remember when Pro Tools came and there, and there were people who threw a fit and said, I'm never going to do that. And they got left behind. And some of, them, doing it. some of them left and some of them conceded and got in with the technology. What is your observations without naming names of people in the world, our peers, our colleagues who are getting on board finally after throwing a fit? In my opinion, the, what I've seen is... I didn't really run into people who were poo-pooing the technology or down on the system. Everybody that I knew was like, this is really cool. They were down on, how are people going to listen to it? Is this worth it? Is this just another 5-1 fad that's going to go away? Why do I have to spend all this money on speakers? Why do, you know, all valid points. But I don't think anybody was ever mad at the technology. I mean, and even to this day, as we sit here in January 2024, I think it's okay if you don't want to invest the money and you don't want to start mixing an Atmos. That's fine. Not everybody needs to do this right now. It is an investment in time and money and everything else. And, you know, I know a couple big time mixers and they're like, you know what? I don't have time to learn this. I'm busy. I'm making money. I'm making records. You do it. And I think that's okay. But I think you have to keep an eye on it because it's not going away anytime soon. Right. Because <laughs> the story you talk about there looking ahead, I think, okay, well, they're busy now, right? but you do it. And eventually it's going to be, well, a lot of those people guys are just going to hire you. A lot of those guys it. have 
built rooms and they're going, okay, and that, then I'll keep all the money now if it's, all I have to do is build it, this room. <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of people who were very vocally online opposed to Atmos that, that now are advocates of it. And my guess is it's going to be the same reason that they've had a conversion that, that I did. So Emily Lazar in 2020 during quarantine was texting me. She texted me on a Friday. Now that we're all stuck here on our rear ends doing nothing, it's a good time to get smart about Atmos. And I texted back, Atmos, Schmatmos. I wanted nothing to do with it, right? And she yelled at me. She got on the phone and said, come on, don't be one of those guys. Uh, don't be a Luddite. Let's like get smart about it. And it took a while. It took actually three or four months. And she was able to figure out a way for me to get in during 2020 to sit down and listen to Rocket Man at Capitol. That's how you get people on it, is you play music for them. (laughs) So all the talking and all the reading and all the badgering that Emily was doing, bless her soul, I mean, she really is the person that pushed me into doing this. All of it was useless because I was still stuck in like, I don't, you know, 5-1, I didn't really like that, and I don't know, quad, a lot of complaining on my side. I was being very cynical about it, not just skeptical, but cynical. And when I heard Rocket Man, like all the talk in the world just didn't matter at all. It was all about hearing. So my assumption is that people who are now advocates for it or mixing in it, who might have been really vocally opposed to it a few years ago, have probably had that same experience. Because this is not 5.1. It's really different. And I'm not somebody who's always swapping out the current gear for the next year's gear. I mean, I'm a studio owner. I'm a cautious studio owner. My spending budget is small. I'm not somebody out there just slinging it around and getting the latest, greatest, whatever. I, you know, I drive the same car I've had for 21 years. I need a new car. <laughs> you might need a new car. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but my point is... How are your speakers? Yeah, my, my, in the car? It's got really nice they're, speakers. No, <laughs> they're, I've replaced them twice. Um, but, but it's not an Atmos system. But my point is that my guess, to answer your original question, is that the people who are now pro-Atmos probably had that physical experience of sitting there and maybe even just hearing the same song, which is Rocket Man, which is a great way to introduce somebody. Which, by the way, I did not mix that song. And Greg Penny and... Greg, Greg, Greg Penny, Penny mixed that right. song. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think I did it, yeah. but I Brian did Penny not did. do it. It's, it's an amazing mix for a variety of reasons. We don't have to get into that. But I think that really makes the difference, and that's why I'm so anxious to see more car audio, because where else are most of us sitting around an array of speakers outside of a movie theater. It's going to be in your car with tweeters and the, and the doors and maybe even stuff in the A-pillars. This is clearly, in my mind, and you're in a fixed position for hours a day or hours a week. This is where people are going to take in this experience potentially really effectively. And I don't know if a sound bar at home is ever going to really do it. Well, and the other thing that I keep trying to remind people of is we're sitting here jumping up and down about music and Atmos. We are not the major consumer of Atmos in music. It was developed as a movie format. It's being driven by movies. It's now starting to be driven by video games also. So it's more in the consumer spectrum than we're giving credit for in the music world That's here. kind of a generational so, thing too, though. The game absolutely. world. So, so it's not just people, Atmos isn't going to stick around because music sucks in it. No, but movies don't suck in it and video games don't suck in it and actually music doesn't suck in it either. But <laughs> But it, there's more than just people making records. There's people making movies and people making video games. So as the gamer buys his system to play his cool game in, which gamers have a tendency to do, well, they can also play records in it. It's the right, same technology. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you put your bitch in home theater in, 
well, now you can play music too. It's a highly successful format that's been around for a long time. It's only been in the last couple of years that we're paying attention to it, although you've been at it for yeah, more than half a decade. it was around for like 10 years before I right. got to it. Right, <laughs> And it's the same technology. Like, we don't use anything different than the film guys. Right. It's the same render. It has to do with the, the ability to like have all that metadata stream and not fail. And that's just something that took time. And, and yeah. where 5.1 didn't have that, it had to be a physical medium, Blu-ray and Well, and now we're starting, SACD you know, we're going to get into wireless speakers and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bluetooth and all this other stuff where you, my dream was always, when can I get the system that I can keep adding speakers to? I can get my soundbar with two speakers and go, you know, this is cool, but I can make it better. And buy two more little speakers and pop them up and they the should system come with, goes, boop, 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 They boop, should come with it, Velcro. And yeah. Just, and then I go, oh, can I get two more for the ceiling? And I pop up. them up there, <laughs> you know. So that's, I always equate it to like, you send your kid to college in his dorm room and he's got a little speaker and his roommate has a little speaker too. Well, now you got two speakers. And, and the consumer stuff is catching up. It's starting to catch up now. We're seeing yeah. sound bars. We're seeing cars. We're, seeing, we're still in such early days yeah. of this thing. It's so early. It's frustrating. And, yeah. You know, at Capital, we were, we were always giving tours and stuff. And we, we gave a lot of tours to car companies because they were involved. And I remember talking to one of the major designers for one of the major car companies. And he said, look... If we chose to do this now, like if we went back to the factory and said, we're putting Atmos in every single new car, he goes, it would be five or six years before you saw a car because that's how long it takes to develop a new model of car. So he goes, even if we said go, it's still going to be five years before you see it. Well, now they're saying go. So it's still going to be four or five. You know, you're just starting to see it in the high end cars and stuff like that. So it's still very early days. Well, I'm going to keep asking questions, but I want to open the questions up to you all, and I'll pass you the mic if you've got a question. So I have, like a lot of people, like clients who don't have stereo systems at all or are listening to test pressings on like Crosley's and stuff like that. And I always have to ask them, how are you listening to this? If you're not having the artist come in to sit next to you to approve these Atmos mixes, how are they listening to it and how are they approving it? Good question. Always best to get them into a room if you can. Never play them their record first. Important safety tip. <laughs> if they've never heard Atmos, don't play them their record first. They will freak out and run out of the room. Play them Rocket Man, play them something else, and then play them their record. You know, if you can get them into a room, great. If you can't, I mean, unfortunately, people are approving stuff on headphones. Yeah. Yeah. AirPod Max, AirPod Pro, whatever the best system you can is. There's becoming better ways to do it now. Stuff like Sampley Audio, where you can right. just put the app up and rather than emailing them an mp4 along with a book that tells them how to play it back yeah. on their iphone so yeah it is it is tough but unfortunately that's kind of where we are right now i've actually joked i was joking last night we were listening to some sono speakers and i said we should just build it into our budgets to just send a sono speaker or two to the client i've done that you've done that i've actually purchased a sonos arab and shipped it to a client to, get, a, to get an album to go yeah and how'd that go it went I mean, meaning it was approved. I subscribed to Sampley, which is a software company that discovered, they're sort of they're trying to maybe do a, who are they competing against? Maybe like... Who, File pass yeah. or... or kind of Dropbox. Dropbox kind of thing. But they discovered that if you upload an MP4 and play it back on an Apple device, it'll play back with whatever that iOS's version of the Apple spatial binaural settings. So you basically get a backdoor into what Apple Music will sound like in AirPod Pros or Maxes or on a on a newer laptop. 
So I subscribed to Sampley and you can put together a nice playlist and artwork and and the backgrounds will pick up whatever primary color that your artwork is. So every band I'm He's working with. Deep. Oh yeah. He's oh, gone. Because I'm looking for approvals, right? Yeah. And um and then I will then send them either the individual song or the, the link to that sampling playlist and they can play back. But I also have a, a little video tutorial that I shot with one iPhone looking at another iPhone, literally showing you how to correctly make sure that you're playing back with your AirPods in Dolby Atmos. Because sometimes if it's not default set correctly or you don't toggle back and forth, it might not happen. And if that's the case, then you, what the mix you're getting is not good, <laughs> you know, potentially really bad, and you're not going to get approval. So that goes with every email I send. So I, we need to talk after because I have a file for you and you're okay. going to have to share a file. All right, cool. <laughs> Secret stuff. But that, that's how I get approval. <laughs> most of the time I can't get, most of the artists I'm working with aren't in Los Angeles or sometimes they're in Chicago or LA you know, or New York or there's an increasing number of cities where you, you might be able to book a listening session but that doesn't happen as much at least for me as as i would like but you know what else is cool is there's a lot more people with a lot more rooms that's right yeah so for instance i have reached out to friends and said hey there's a guy who's going to come over to your studio in about an hour can right. you play this for him and yeah sure and i mean i'm willing to do you know if somebody's yeah. in if i have the time and i'm there and everything else so yeah it's getting easier is going to be my point. I mean, I know Universal's still building rooms all over the world. There's rooms going up all over the place. If you can have a relationship with somebody and, hey, you're in New York and you have a room, can I send a client over for an hour once a month or whatever? But so. that's also an economic opportunity for studios with Atmos systems to do playback to offer however long it's going to be to get a fee for that. Other questions? I don't know that I would personally charge somebody for that. <laughs> For an hour, yeah. for a whole day, maybe. But if it's you didn't get our bill, no. <laughs> Send it to the guy across the parking lot. <laughs> I'm sure he'll get right on that. <laughs> maybe you you get a check out Mixup Audio. They are supporting now MP4, and it's pretty nice way to talk with your clients. I'm doing mix since four years now in the Atmos Studio in Paris. I'm wondering if you're still doing stereo mix plus. Atmos mix, or you you are going from Atmos to stereo now? Is it possible for you to do that? So personally, if I'm hired to do both, I still do the stereo mix first. However, that is changing because I am right now starting a project where I'm not going to have the artist, like I'm going to get them for very short periods of time. And I have to do them both at the same time. So I'm just now starting to get into the one mix for everything. When I get to the end, I may treat the stereo a little like a different quote unquote mastering or whatever. But yeah, I'm, I'm starting now to look into and to play around with doing one mix, an Atmos mix and then a 2.0 Stereo mix, yeah, re-render, not a fold down. It's I'm, a re-render. I'm just starting to. I'm just starting to consider that, and a lot of the stuff I'm hired to mix is, it's like heavy guitar rock stuff. There's so much sample replacement on drums and so much compression at every stage. I haven't got wrapped my head around the idea of beginning that mix process for that album in Atmos and having it fold down to two point. I I just don't know. Uh, and also, we haven't talked about this either. We probably don't have time mastering for that. So what I do is I 
is I, yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll mix the record and then we have a mastering engineer. That person masters the record. I get them the stereo masters that have been approved by the band and myself. And then I begin my Atmos version because it's not brick walled, but it's aggressive. And again, that has a lot to do with the kind of music. It depends on the music. If it's a jazz album or acoustic, classical music, there might be very easy or easier to start with Atmos and do that 2.0 fold down as your stereo. But not in the world I'm in. I'm just starting to think about that. And I'm 100% doing that. One mix, Atmos, stereo. I just uploaded tracks for a jazz record that I did to Immersive Audio Album and to the services. It'll come out in a couple weeks. I'm working on a rock record right now. I'm sold. Uh, That's my path. I want to do that, but I'm, I'm just... It's going to take me a while. We could do a call. <laughs> I need help. I could, I could show you. Yeah, <laughs> I wish there were a group of people who did this. I, I know. Could talk I, to. I, yeah. It's strange. If we had hats. <laughs> Caesar, you had a question. I don't even know if I should ask this. It might be too ambitious of a question, but what are your take on setting up an Atmos room in smaller rooms? Because I think that's kind of been my dilemma with trying to start this. You know, like we've been kind of messing around with it a little bit, but it's like. Are we going to like do all this and then, oh, you can't, you can't do it in this room. So, I mean, not that that's going to stop me, but, yeah. you know, I just, I just kind of want to see your take because you guys are obviously the ones that have been doing it for a while. Well, obviously you can't put huge speakers in a right. small room, so you're going to be limited to the, the size of speakers you can have. Right. I mean, I don't think you're any more limited than you are in stereo. Good room is a good room, right? Right, right? Small room is a small room in stereo. You can't put big, huge stereo speakers. So I would say... In that case, you have to be a little more, pay more attention to the actual speakers you're using and making sure that they fit and that it covers what you need to get it to do and all that kind of stuff. But I wouldn't be put off by a small room. You just might need smaller speakers. My room, my room's 11 feet wide by 22 or 23 feet deep. And that's pretty narrow. Yeah. Uh, that's not very wide. And... Ted and Maurice at PMC were like, well, this will be essentially like a near field Atmos room. I've got plenty of ceiling height and I obviously got that depth. So bass trapping has never been an issue. This is a room I've been mixing in since 2004. So I knew the room fairly well, but I wasn't sure that adding a whole bunch of speakers all around was going to just highlight flaws that were insurmountable. As it turned out, that wasn't the case at all. And if you can put a a 914 system in in an 11 foot wide room like mine, you're probably fine. And Brad and I have something in common. He he has the original PMC wafer speakers as his surrounds, and I've got the newer CI series that we see all around us, these four-inch deep speakers. Right. And I've got a small room, and it's to me it was the, the solution because if you have a monitor that's too deep, you're going to eat up all yeah. the space. So you can have your LCRs be one model of a speaker. Right, maybe self you know, self-powered with larger cabinet because it's got the amplifier in it. And we did talk about having the same speaker, but I think in my case, the CI series was close enough to the PMC's result sixes that I don't hear a problem. But maybe choosing a different brands is where I think is going to get problematic. But again, it's all about that calibration, the delay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And all don't that don't skimp on that. Yeah. <laughs> We're out of time, but... uh, We're almost out of audience. I know. I know. Everybody (laughs) laughed. I got so damn hot in here. Yeah. Uh, Hey, guys, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Brad Wood and Steve Genowick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. That concludes part one of the Live from NAM episode. Tune in next week where we will do Live from NAM with Andrew Sheps, also at the PMC booth. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the fantastic voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, or feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.